This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. All right, you're listening to another episode of Stark Reality. How's uh, everybody doing? Hanging in, I hope. Small change here. Jim Deere, whatever you remember. This time, my guest is Dirty South Joe. Joe has been DJing for a number of decades. We talk about his roots in D.C., spinning at the 930 Club back in the day. Moving to New York, playing around here for a while, moving to Philly in, uh, I believe, like the early 2000s, working at Armand's Records, sort of the main hip-hop shop out there. Uh, His roots uh, in Baltimore club music, Jersey Club, his sub-label through Mad Decent, Old Head Records, uh, various parties he's done over the years. He has this (coughs) yacht rock party he did for a while called Smooth Sailing. He has a, a sort of a Drake-themed night called So Far Gone that's pretty crazy. He gets thousands of people out for this party. And currently is doing this new kind of anime party that he's going to do a mix for us, but it's been taking a minute. <laughs> it's all good, though. And uh, so I figured I would throw up the interview since it's starting to get old at this point. We recorded this February 24th, 2022. Anyways, Dirty South Joe. Oh, and of course, his Palestinian roots, which uh, took me a minute to even figure that out. So we talk about uh, Palestine, a little bit about Ukraine. Anyways, enjoy Dirty South Joe on Stark Reality. <laughs> Joe, man, it's been a while. How's it going, man? Oh, man. Not too bad, man. How about yourself? Yeah, you know, hanging in there. It's uh, It's a wonderful world, isn't it? Just it's crazy, keeps, man. It just keeps getting more and more special. More and more wacky. Everybody's, <laughs> I think everybody's like, I feel like the uh, the overall vibe I'm getting from a lot of the internet is like, yeah, finally, World War Three, here we come. And it's like a really weird thing. Like almost in a very uh, gung-ho kind of way. Well, it's almost like people playing uh, too many video games. So it's just like, yeah. oh, right. You know, because I, I don't know. I, I kind of like call like these, these like psycho drivers that I see driving around New York. That's almost like they think life is Grand Theft Auto and they're driving like they're in a video game. But it's like, well, if you slam into me, <laughs> my insurance yeah. goes up, even if it's not my fault. So it's like, but I mean, people just kind of live their life that way. It's kind of like. You know, and I think maybe that kind of translates into some of this, like, you know, you have enough, like, battle video games or whatever, and then you're kind of like, oh, life's a video game, except, well, people are actually dying. This is not and a freaking video just, game. You know? Yeah, exactly. And then people just kind of, like, see this, like, real time, like, regime fucking change, like, you know, like, hot, you know, crazy shit on their phone, and they're just sort of completely desensitized to it. And it just, 
it all just feels like a big video game. Yeah. Yeah. Though, I mean, I think, you know, in the end, uh, a lot of the fuckery really has to go back to the U.S., you know, in terms of I've seen you some know. of these, uh, some of the uh, some of the highlights, like there's been some news outlets that apparently like footage that they've shown that was supposedly like bombing of Ukraine was actually like Israeli bombing of like Gaza and shit. And like, they're, yeah, I uh, mean, I remember I was talking about. Jewish was, voice they were pointing that out yeah no and like I remember even uh, when uh, there were some of the Venezuelan protests and then like sort of mainstream media was putting in protests from Egypt but then saying it was Venezuela so that's kind of like one of those things that kind of happens online and I think it's almost some of it is deliberate as they throw oh, shit, yeah. they throw shit out there so then people retwe- retweet it without really checking it and then it's like oh you got to watch out for all this fake news yeah because even with a it's full kind of like a way of like, like delegitimizing real things because people kind of fall for this bait that they throw out you know right because even if they got caught and had to like pull back retract it you know make another statement you still got probably like 50 60 percent of people who didn't see that second part gonna take it for the word you know the gospel believe it yeah kind of crazy it is really, really crazy, man. It's crazy. I, I don't know. I mean, I post a lot online, and then I get these yeah. people that are like, you post too much, you know? And it's like, you're on my wall telling me that I'm wasting my time. Who's wasting... Who's, like, the ultimate waste of time is telling someone that doesn't even care that, you, you know, they're wasting their time? I don't know. It gets tiring, you know? I just... It's I kind of look at it as just pushback, you know, it's like I feel like you just get so much bullshit in media that it's like, I don't know, as people have mentioned, it's almost like you're we've, we're through the looking glass. Like there's yeah. so many things that are presented that are completely upside down that just feels like, I don't know, for myself, I just feel like I need to push back against that because it's just like just blatant, blatant lies, you know. How do you um, like, how do you. Because I kind of feel like there's like a definitely like a, a shift in people's overall feelings towards Palestine and and in Israel these days. Like it's actually like it's not quite there yet, but we're within like a decade of something massively going to change as far as is like you know the U.S. relationship with Israel. I mean, I don't know if the U.S. relationship will change because, you know, the government is fully committed to having that little, you know, like I kind of look at it like the four billion that we give Israel. It's kind of an elaborate, you know, money, you know, like sort of laundering scheme because the money that they give, they have to spend. I forget. I think it might be like even up to 75 percent back on arms that they buy from the U.S., so in a way, when you have like these gigantic military budgets of like 700 billion, but then they add another 4 billion because that money from Israel is also going to come back to the U.S. And then they also can keep some of that money and develop their own arms. And then we buy arms from the U.S. So it's cu- from Israel. So it's kind of like so this did. little thing. It's I feel like even beyond the racism that and the colonialism, it's, it's always kind of like it kind of goes back to some of this kind of like geopolitics stuff. And even some of the stuff in the Ukraine, Yeah, you can say one of the, the main things that they wanted to accomplish is they didn't like Germany with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that they were going to get liquefied 
natural gas or natural gas from Russia. So in a way, by creating this whole thing and sort of like prodding Russia enough to kind of get involved, then it gives the U.S. an excuse to tell Germany that they have to cancel the Nord Stream pipeline and buy natural gas from them, even though it's like twice the price. So it kind of isolates. So, you know, I mean, that's also kind of like a simplified thing, but you can't say that that's not a part of it, you know, the, yeah. the sort of business aspects it's that, all, that are kind of by, like way behind all, all financial stuff. transactions yeah. yeah you know it's like business shit it's like oh we'll make russia look bad and then we'll tell germany they have to cancel their thing and whatever <laughs> i mean this is the shit i should be that i follow though you know it's funny it's like obviously we're music heads so you know i definitely need to spend time following music too but uh i don't know it's just no, i like the fact that you're talking about both of these things where you're just going to the core of like the financial transaction and, you know, like who's going to like stop that. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like forget about any of like, you know, uh, any kind of like, like societal shifts or anything like that, but like cultural shifts, but like, just like focusing in on like the money at all times. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's sort of the basic, yeah. you know, there's the basic aspect of that, but of course, these people have no morals, too, because you think about stuff like the Azov Battalion, which is basically a neo-Nazi armed group that's part of the Ukraine military. Like, Ukraine has major neo-Nazi problem. And that's another thing you don't really see in Western corporate press. In fact, ABC and CBS did, like, little things. Like, there was some grandma that was getting, like shooting training you know before all this stuff went down right. and but the thing is if you looked on the camera who who was she being trained by as of battalion you look at their patch they have this like old school patch that's sort of like the ukraine swastika you know and it's basically yeah. you know it's right there on tv and like you know these people are reporters all you have to do is google as of battalion look into their stuff like for 10 minutes and you would know that they're not they're like blatant motherfucking nazis and then they're sitting there getting whitewashed because like oh look they're training grandma against the evil putin blah 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 so it's like yeah because the the cnns are just working on the behalf of the military industrial complex to just sort of like ease in our involvement towards everything anyway you know what i mean like they want they want to get like a healthy american cosign for whatever military operatives they involve themselves in because of just basically the amount of money they're gathering. Yeah. And so like the news, the CNNs and, you know, MSNBC in the world are just even the Foxes, they're all just kind of like working on that behalf to basically like make, you know, us, you know, put some sugar on the medicine. So it goes down, you know? Yeah. I so mean, what, it's, they kind of hit it from, gonna... they hit it from different angles. Like you have Fox news that's trying to convince the fascists to go to war. And then you have NPR in between, like, say, some broccoli recipe talking about how evil Maduro is or Putin is. or right. I mean, if you listen to NPR's foreign reporting, it's indistinguishable from, you know, any other kind of, like, corporate news source. It's very right-wing. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, that's the thing. is like, in the end, when you kind of look at these outlets, and this is kind of part of the reason I post so much, it's just, like, trying to counter propaganda, which it's kind of impossible because <laughs> it's just constant. I mean, if you just saw even all the articles during the uh, Olympics, like, slanging, you know, the Chinese are dystopian right. and blah, blah, blah. It's always kind of like trying to put these images in so that people are, are kind of primed, like, China is shady, Putin's evil. So then when something else comes up in the news cycle that may or not, might, may, may, or may, may or may not be true, probably not, 
given U.S. media, but people are already predisposed to believe it because yeah. they've kind of had a thousand other articles that are also bullshit. But again, it's sort of like that throw everything at the wall, see what sticks, and then eventually people will get an impression, you know, just like people think, oh, you know, everyone in North Korea is brainwashed and all that stuff. But meanwhile, it's kind of like, to me, that's like a real telling sign of uh, just how brainwashed Americans are because yeah. they literally make up shit about North Korea, DPRK yeah. or whatever. Like they literally will say, oh, you know, Kim Jong-un died or he killed his girlfriend. And then like three weeks later, like, oh. They're not dead or whatever. It's like some retraction. Like, do you think they do that to any other country, any other leader? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah exactly. It's crazy, man. But uh, you, you have uh, you've been in this game for a long time, man. Very long time. Quite a while, man. Yeah. 30, 30 years, 30 plus years. Yeah. I was kind of like looking at some of all the different things to talk to you about because you've been kind of even done all these different kind of parties over the years from like electro to yacht rock and you have your uh drake night and you're starting this right. anime night. <laughs> I mean, holotronics board you know working yeah. at armands all the dirty south you know like dirty south hip-hop shit all, you the, know. all the club music from baltimore, baltimore and jersey. exactly jersey club baltimore yeah, yeah. Um, i mean how did you get started originally djing I got started originally uh, when I was in high school in D.C. area. I lived in northern Virginia in a place called Annandale. I would spend many, many nights, school nights, going to see, like, amazing bands at the old 930 Club in D.C. And Like legendary, got, uh, like, punk club, right? And well, they had all yeah, kinds of shows, every, basically. All kinds of shows, yeah. Um, and, uh, like, I... I guess it was just as high school was ending and I was also like, I was working at like tower records. And then I was also working at like two different, like indie. I was working at this punk store called smash that was in Georgetown. I was working just like doing all this other stuff. Like DJing was just like a natural way to just keep going to like shows and just like, you know, just expressing my like, love and purchasing of music you know so i started djing at the 930 club in like 1990 wow that's crazy what were you playing back then well this was you know i auditioned for my very first night um the band the, the djs would kind of you know there, there's just hand, small handful of djs that are like the resident djs of the club maybe one or two of them might be like bartenders there on the regular too but when you would kind of see the upcoming, but for the most part, the DJs were the, just like the DJs separately. And you would see the schedule upcoming and just kind of, you know, pick the shows that you wanted to do and play music for that crowd. Because That's pretty amazing, DJs, actually. Yeah. The, so the DJs there would play like probably about an hour and a half before the first band would even come on. Um, and then in between the bands from most of the time, if there was like, say, a 30 minute break, you might play 25 or something or maybe even right after the band's done. And then um, the end of the night and then on weekends, you know, they kind of like keep it extended to like regular nightclub hours. So maybe you do a couple hours afterwards, like it all depended. So, but so my first night, my first audition and I actually like made a tape um, for it was uh, the band's ride 
and Lush were doing a tour. Unbelievable. That's amazing. I, I was like really, really, really heavy into everything from like, like the Manchester baggy era of like Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and Spiral Carpets and all that stuff. And then a couple years later, when the shoegaze thing started to crest, I was like really heavily into that. And Ride were like straight up, like probably like my favorite band of that era. And so I made- Yeah, that's like classic era right there. Yeah, so I made a basic like a tape that was just like not just indie guitar band jangly stuff, but it was, you know, there's some like James Brown and some like disco stuff mixed in. And just it was just like a whole like, here's what I would play for an hour or two hours or whatever. And I gave it to uh, this guy's name's Lamont Prince. He was the guy that was like in charge of booking the DJs. Um, and, you know, they all already knew me there. I kind of already was like a, a rat of this club, you know, that was just kind of like always there at shows um, through the years. And uh, yeah, gave me that, gave me that shot. And then from there, it was just like, just, you know, all kinds of like things you can think of bands and stuff in the, in the nineties, like, you know, came through and uh, just got to do just like amazing. It was, it was, it was an amazing way to like come into DJing, you know what I mean? Where every night is just like something different. I had to think about like a different audience for every band that's playing there based on, you know, and you would kind of like do the show. There's very few times when you're, they're just like, Joe, you need to work this show that you don't want to work. That wasn't the option. It was more like, Oh, this is something I love. I might have to like get into some kind of like wrestling match with the other DJs for it, but maybe not, you know what I mean? It's like, and so, so it was just like kind of like doing stuff that you were into, but then also trying to, you know, make the sounds like, you know, like fit, you know? Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's kind of like a pretty unique way since it's a, cl- you know, it was like a, a live music venue that had a lot of different styles of music coming through and then you're DJing to accompany it. It's sort of like you're DJing getting... and, oh, and... I was saying, I was saying, and VJing. VJing was a big part of it too. What? Visuals. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, because we would get these like reels of like, here's the alternative reel. Here's the urban reel. Here's the whatever reel. Um, we would get those only these like what are they like quarter inch decks or whatever like the they're just like a different kind of like a, 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 a you know like a t- uh, VHS type deck so we'd have two VHS players and then two of these and two turntables and two CDJs and all of this stuff was like kind of like you know it, it going on so even when you're not playing like music videos from these reels or things that you brought from home or whatever on VHS you're still playing like background video stuff. So you're, you're picking like funky movies or something to show in the back, some trauma film or something, you know what I mean? Just like some weird funky stuff to play while you're, while you're doing that. So it was just like, yeah, it was all of those things at once. I forgot about like all of the, uh, that's the video. crazy. That's like, really, that's a lot. I don't think I've even like yeah, juggling so visuals like, and DJing at the same time. And that's like your first, gig that's pretty wild and doing it you know and doing it at the time when everything was like there wasn't analog there wasn't, shit, you know? everything was analog yeah exactly everything needed to be rewound and like you know brought to a certain point but i mean i don't know if that's how when you come up doing things a certain way and at the same time it was easy because there was like never the the pressure of like uh keeping the dance floor going or anything like that you know what i mean maybe you know, I'm, I remember like D light came through one night. I DJ, I got to DJ for that. And obviously like 
every once in a while, like the they have orb, a more kind of a club night kind of thing based on night, the band but, that was playing there, right. basically. But even still, it was like it was it wasn't it was a different time. Like it wasn't like everybody was just like fully raving in between the acts. You know, everybody's waiting to see the the band, even in that context. So there wasn't the real like that that dance floor like technical pressure, but it was definitely like as far as like working out the aesthetics of how you view DJing going forwards, like it was definitely like a, a pretty awesome beginning, you know? Well, in, in a way, I mean, I kind of started out doing like freeform radio, which I'm still doing. And that's always, I, I, I like to keep doing it because I feel like it just keeps me eclectic, not just, yeah. but, but it's kind of an interesting way to start DJing. Cause sometimes when you're DJing, starting out in clubs, you might have a certain sound and then that, you know, you, you might get big based on that sound and then that becomes your identity and you might like other music and even play it occasionally, but that becomes your main thing. But for you kind of like doing that club, it's almost like I have to do, I have to wear many different hats, even as a DJ starting right. out. And that kind of translates because you actually really are very eclectic, even though you do these kind of styled nights, you like, you really play a lot of different styles of music, you know? For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like to think so, but um, I guess I've never really, other than hip hop, which has just been like the my life's blood since I was a little kid, kind of like I've never really felt locked into like one style of music as being like the end all be all of like what I like and what I think other people would enjoy, like when they're having like a, you know, a going out experience. So I like to keep it keep it pretty fresh yeah you were and you were a buyer uh sort of one of the main buyers at armand's which is like sort of like i guess the uh the rock and soul or one of the kind of classic hip-hop spots of uh philly philadelphia which you've been based in for a long time but though i think i met you in new york right you were in new york for a minute right yeah you met me in new york when i was uh with uh john selway yeah like uh, rancho relaxo or what was that what was the crew yeah, they had the rancho relaxo all-stars yeah. we also had a group the responsible space playboys yes like responsible play- space playboys exactly you guys were like doing like electro because selway is like obviously been doing techno forever and stuff you know yeah yeah but yeah we were doing like electro with like van halen vocals and stuff like that yeah, and then you ended up in uh, Philly, and uh, you know you were you were working at a buyer at, at Armand's. I was like, yeah, that was an amazing thing when I when I got to Philly and um, and basically I took over like the buying and like the managing for the, the the vinyl part of this record store. What I was struck by was like here in this one location, and this is still like the pre Serato era. So at that point in time, like you know, as a buyer. Like, there's nothing you like more than just, like, just having, like, no budget and no limits on what you can bring to the store. And when I lived in New York, for the six years that I lived in New York, when I knew you, like, I had a rotation of probably uh, 12 to 15 stores that were really on my, you know, one or two of them I would only hit up for, like, some soundtracks or some shit, like, twice a year. But then other stores... I mean, I, I would, you know, there was a certain period of time right there, uh, 98, 99, 97, where I would go to Fat Beats like twice a week, you know? I would go to uh, Rock and Soul. Um, I would go there like at least once a week. I would go to uh, Beat Street in Brooklyn. Yeah, Beat Street. One, exactly. Beat, Beat Street. Street. I would go there like once a month because it was like, 
most of what I can find at B Street, I'm going to find at Rock and Soul. And it was in Brooklyn anyway. Right, right. And I lived in Manhattan. But like, and then there was just like a number of spots along the way. There's A1 for this, you know, for some digging, you know what I mean? Because like a lot of the time I was trying to get current records to play, you know, new hip hop jams and stuff. So I don't know. I Basically, I had just had a, rep- a, a rotation of like so many different stores. And then when I got to Philly and got to Armand's, and saw the size of the store, which is like the size of a beat, beat street. It's huge. Right. And then, and then was like kind of given this budget slash no budget. Meanwhile, at the same time, being like I was in New York and had no idea what the fuck Baltimore Club was. I came to Philly and there's this whole section of all these records. And then like when it, what I was used to was at the end of the night in New York, that last 20 or 30 minutes, a DJ would play dance hall. And that would be how a hip hop DJ would kind of take out the end of the night, would like kind of go into this sort of like reggae place. Maybe there's some like, you know, some lovers rock kind of slow whiny kind of stuff going on right at the very end. But that would just sort of be like the progression that I would notice most people took. But then what I noticed in Philly was things went a completely different route. And that was like everybody would play in Baltimore club music and they would call it party music. And that was like one of the first things I did was really establishing like some deep you know, connections with a lot of the people in Baltimore making the music from the producers to even like, you know, uh, distributors, you know, like on the DJ record techniques and Rod Lee and all those guys, right, because right. I went down to Baltimore back in the day and I went to Rod Lee's shop and it was kind of amazing. It was all the records, you know, he was literally selling them on the other side. And then I looked on the other side of the counter and there was a big mixing board. He was making all the records there. And so it was like one stop. Like, it's kind of a crazy thing. I tried to go to techniques, place but i think it had closed so i went to dimensions and sound and got some stuff but yeah but you're right like the baltimore shit i went down to baltimore because it wasn't distributed very well in new york and i'm like i gotta go down there and get some of these records you know at the time in the late 90s or whatever but i just thought it was crazy how like you know philly was not that far from new york but like the music had such a like a foothold on like the radio here on hip-hop radio there would be baltimore club you know areas and i keep saying baltimore because this was basically before dj tamil took the baltimore club turn uh, uh template and brought it to jersey like this was this music was just was strictly coming from baltimore at the time um and it's funny because i got together I, there was that sort of period of time when i was uh living here but i would still go back to new york a lot when i had just moved here and i would and i'd be working with the uh, selway and and Prozac, and we actually came up. Yeah, we, shouts we, to Prozac. That's right. Yeah, Prozac, yeah. he's a man. Zach Vitsa. Yeah, we we came up. Uh, we made um, a responsible space playboys uh, Baltimore club tune that like had like these yin yang twins and elements, and also like this really rare jazzy Fay vocal. And um, the song was called "Just a Pimp," and uh, that came out on like a one of Abe Duque's labels like tension or some kind of like, and um, I freaking moved. That was when I knew I, f- I made it. I probably moved like 500 copies out of our minds alone. That's of this crazy. Record. That's crazy. And there was a couple of, there was once a time or two where a couple of the low, and you know, like it's weird because, you know, you're making like a style that's just like, you know, well, I mean, obviously there's like, the second half of this tune actually had like a 303 in it and it gets all acidy and stuff. So we were already like taking it outside of like the normal, like what makes a Baltimore club tune type element. We're already like 
Yeah, you're kind of tweaking it because, I mean, obviously Zach and Zach and Selway are coming from like you know all different kinds of styles. So they, 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 you know, I know Prozac when he was working at a Aldo's shop. You know, he he was also like way early up on Baltimore and some of the Detroit like sort of ghetto tech. Oh yeah, yeah, he was Zach was really heavy into a lot of like the dance mania Chicago stuff, and then like a lot of the Detroit like ghetto ghetto tech stuff. Like he was really up on a lot of that. but yeah, so so it had these other elements, but like I was still, but but it was still like you want it to, you want the DJs that you know are buying these other records to want your record too to like have it. And there was a couple of times when DJs came in that had already bought a copy that something happened to it, it got scratched up, it broke or something, and came back to buy another copy of the record. And I was like, oh, you guys didn't just buy this just because like you felt bad for me, like. <laughs> You guys actually like like right, the record. All right, we'll buy your like hipster weird ass techno, you know, exactly. Baltimore club. Right. You know, even though it's not really a real club record, you know. <laughs> which that's hilarious. Yeah, which it's funny because we we're all trying to like get that like approval because you know one of the earliest uh, Diplo productions major label things was he did official remixes for uh, Gwen Stefani Hollaback Girl. But actually, there was like a a 12 inch that came out back then from what was she on Geffen or whatever, but um, that it had came like, out, uh, did it, I mean, it got stamped. Like it was on the label. It wasn't a bootleg. It was on the label. Was it a, a promo pack. or was it an yeah. actual release? Uh, it was an actual release. Okay. You know, remember when they, they used to release dance remixes of like, you know, major label stuff. No, but, no, yeah, of course, had, of course. But I remember he first brought it in. Like we would, we would use our minds like system in the back of the store to kind of like test new things people were working on and that and he was no exception he would definitely like finish working on something and we would bring it to listen to it in the store because we it just there's a certain way it had to match everything else that's coming out and sounding like what it's sounding like and i remember him bringing me his 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 it was honestly like this this uh yeah this gwen stefani remix and i was like yeah okay that's cool but can you make one that like black folks might like too? And so he actually went back in and ended up doing two mixes of this one tune. It both came out on the 12 inch, but it was definitely one of those things where it was just like, okay, you got too hipster weird with it. It doesn't have those right, multiple right. elements it needs. Put those back in there. And then he, he did a second mix and it was like, it was legit. But yeah, because yeah, the drums like, are kind of like chopped in a certain way, which, you know, also yeah. with the, it's kind of like these almost clipped, chopped. It's like kind of abrupt. There's a certain feel to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then also like my, my buddy Low Budget, like he had a record um, that actually like came out on like Unruly Records out of Baltimore, Scotty B. Scotty B's and, label, uh, right? Scotty B and Sean Caesar's label. Right. Yeah. And um, the record did really well and apparently did really well in Baltimore, too. And it was just like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that was just like, at that time, that was the ultimate was to just kind of fit in and be accepted, you know, and known by like the Baltimore dudes for being like official, you know? Well, because you're kind of coming into their scene and sort of a sound they developed. And even if you like it, then obviously you want them to play it because they're sort of the OGs that have been kind of playing this music for a while. Exactly. And yeah, so, so all of this stuff is kind of happening, you know, still pre Serato era. So that was the whole thing about this rotation of all the stores that I used to go to is like, now I've got the keys and this like unlimited budget for this place. So as a buyer, I was just like, I want to make this like the best 
record store in North America. And if you like love hip hop, I want everybody to know that this is the best store in the world. And the way I knew that was because I knew, I knew, you know, what I was like spending as far as it's like what I was bringing in and like, and, and it just like, it was that for a couple of years, you know what I mean? And then Serato hit and then everything changed, you know? Yeah, because also you did all these mixtapes, and uh, that's another thing that, again, kind of what you're talking about where you're down in Philly and you're getting exposed to, like, Baltimore break stuff is that uh, that's, I think, a key thing that's a difference between New York and Philly is with Philly, you're just a little bit farther south, so then you're kind of just catching more of these sounds that might not necessarily come up to New York. And I remember listening to some of your mixes, and you had all this kind of obscure, like a lot of indie dirty south hip-hop that i like didn't know any i I think we had you come and play at apt at our party and like that was one of my favorite sets you of course it was apt system was like function one and you were like burning like just these like sub bass ass like crunk tracks that were just ridiculous on that system man i'm like man i don't even have half this shit i don't even know what this is crazy I mean, back in the day, let's see, it was like, uh, what was the name of the place? I want to say the it was a little place in like, uh, in the East Village called like Alchemy or something. Okay. On like Avenue. Yeah, Avenue I vaguely Avenue. remember. I, that might yeah, be Alchemy. We, I like, in 99, myself and uh, uh, my, she was like my protege at the time, this chick, uh, Sashenda. We used to DJ a weekly party over there in 99 called Get Crunk. And like, you know what I mean? That puts it in perspective about like where like my mind was with like the It's like because I'll tell you, like, just actually one being from the South, but then just like that certain point where like the hot boys bling bling came out. And I was just like, whoa, sonically, this is just like what's going on here? And then I, I like spent a little more time like down south in my later later years, like and was just realizing like, you know, how much different it is when music is like meant to be played in cars as opposed to like headphone music on the subway you know what i mean and just like just just having all this like mind expansive things happening but then by the time i was like back in new york i was just like all i cared about was like dirty south hip-hop because what it was that wasn't all i cared about because i was definitely really into like the the indie rap of the time as well and all this like but when uh i think when big l died i was it was just like i don't know you know just things I, like that, that, that raucous, like fondulum, like that by 2000, it was like heavily on the decline. And by like 2001, 2002, that stuff was, was like just irrelevant, you know? Yeah. It was kind of like but the it, rise it, of the South at that point, kind of taking yeah, the sound in a way, you know? Yeah. I mean, but that, that, that one, that one era of like, most deaf and quality and even like dead prez over here and all this kind of stuff. Like there was a lot going on. That was like, you know, great. A lot of like, and a lot going on that was like indie 12 inch bass too, you know? Oh no, I love a lot of that stuff. I mean, some of that stuff is funny. It goes for, it goes for, it's like collectible and goes for money. I mean, it's kind of crazy that, you know, and again, it's not necessarily like super party rock and shit, but I think it's like, I was, you know, collecting yeah. some of that stuff, and I love that sound, like Fondulum, all that That's stuff. There's a lot of good, when, uh, the Cenobites, and just there's some like classic releases right. on Fondulum for sure. And then, well, that was what's funny is like, but so then, so it's like 2000, late 2002, I moved to Philly, but two, early 2003 is when I, I, I started at Armand's, and one big section of the store was that like 
indie backpack like area of music and and it was just like i i just like from that point on just like just watching that just like just evaporate <laughs> it wasn't that i took pleasure in it but it was also just like you know the, at that point there was definitely a lot of like weird like dogmatic like white kids involved in hip-hop that yeah i mean involved. basically i guess whether they go the backpack era which i guess you know a lot of like hip hop people slang on those people because it almost becomes like the sort of white nerdy rap critic. That's not, which again, it's not really something that's like representative of like going out to a club and dancing. It's more like it gets a little more nerded out, which is kind of the antithesis of hip hop in some ways, you know, it didn't really, I'm not saying like, you know, people like, you know, red alert or all these people weren't nerds in a way in terms of the way they dug, you know, records and got nerdy into like finding stuff. But it, it, that's the thing. Like, I feel like hip hop club culture and stuff. It's not really nerdy. It's more like it banging, created a whole you know? world of, of of hip hop that's there to somehow define what is or isn't hip hop, and that became like the focal point. It was almost just like a um, like a meta thing, you know. That was just like not necessary and not really moving the culture forward in any kind of way, and was actually disconnected from most people and most relatable things about hip hop culture. You know what I mean? It was, it was very... Well, yeah, and also I think it's sometimes... Isolated. It's like people trying to make Elitist. some sort of 92, 93, 94 record over and over and over again, even in 2002, 2003, still trying right. to make, like, you know, I don't know, some classic gang star or tribe or et cetera. But then it kind of almost becomes a little bit derivative. It almost reminds me when I was growing up in the mod scene, ska scene, and, you know... You obviously like the original ska stuff is classic. I like a lot of the two tone stuff too. But then, like when the third wave came around, there were some yeah. good bands, especially live. But a lot of times, when they were making records in the late '80s, early '90s, when the production wasn't great, it almost becomes like this bad mimeographed version of two tone or of the '60s. It's kind of like you're kind of making like the copies are sort of deteriorating. You yeah, don't. You're, like, you're trying to make a style. record, but you're making. You're trying to make that record so bad that it actually isn't that record. You know, yeah, I don't know if that makes be, any sense. It does. Scott will be good again once they reach the uh, 69th or the 420th generation. You know what I mean? Like one of those. By that point, it, it might be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another thing too that I admire about you because sometimes I get stuck in my sort of favorite classic records. Is you just always keep moving. I really. Right. I'm always like impressed. Like you are. I've in never, fact, Go ahead. Right sorry. now, I've never. Well, as far as keeping moving, that's what like that's the thing about where I'm at right now. And um, every day is this awesome and awe-inspiring education that I'm like putting myself into, which is for Japanese like alternative rock, mostly from like anime soundtracks, you know, anime openings and anime endings, and realizing that like whereas I can pretty safely say like guitar based, like rock alternative, any kind of like sounds in the U S have just been like less and less interesting through the years. Like going back, like I can't remember the last time I heard a, a band that I gave a shit about And you know, I think I liked system of a down when they came out, they were cool. Uh, before that you'd have to go back to like that late, you know, like, I don't know when Nirvana, when Kurt Cobain died and Nirvana was gone, like there weren't good bands for a long time. Like rock and roll has just basically been like so super dead. And then like 
if you look, if you watch, you know, one thing that happened as during quarantine, um, is I basically, you know, that you're supposed to put 10,000 hours into things to become, you know, an expert. Basically I put in my like 10,000 hours of anime and then also just like studying the music the whole time. And, and it's, and it's, it's amazing. It's just like, there's really like, I don't have to actually understand the words to actually have like the same feeling that like in the eighties, late eighties and like, like the alternative music of the day, like gave you. And then in the nineties, the, like the more like indie stuff, but still like alternative stuff. And like, you know, like punk and post-punk sounds like all of that still like lives and breathes and thrives and sounds just like sonically like powerful and relevant in, in, you know, in like anime music. And it's just been. Yeah. So you, uh, so this is like a recent party you've been doing, right? Like you've, how many of you, these have you done? done You only done one. And you're, and you're actually also, again, it's almost like a flip back to, you know, your OG days of DJing. Cause you're trying, you are putting like a visual element in it, I assume too. Right. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a visual element. Um, Right. Well, see, so when, when I first, I've been basically like kicking this concept around pitching it to, I'm working with Live Nation on this at the, at the new Brooklyn Bowl in Philly. We have a Brooklyn, Brooklyn Bowl, Philadelphia, and it's a beautiful venue and it just opened. I mean, it opened during COVID, like, which is just the craziest thing for any business to do. It's not, you know, it's only been around for a few months now, but, um, uh, we did, we did, you know, we did one event so far and we have another one coming up on 31st of March, but, um, it, it's like, uh, just trying, like the music is like super popular, but at the same time, there's just like no, no outlets for it, you know? So we're just like trying to kind of create a scene from scratch at this point. And, um, and it, it you know, there was a lot of people that came out and cosplayed and whatnot at the first one. And they're bowling and they're drinking and they're having a good time. And there's this like crazy visual element. And there were like a ton of like giveaways and there's this like wall scrolls everywhere. And we had like a, like 15 like anime coloring books. And like I had a whole section and some of the more introverted kids over there, like coloring, but stuff like that. I don't know. It's, it's, That's uh, nice. You're kind of trying to like really just kind of create and in, in terms of properly hosting a party, you're kind of giving people different activities, even at a party to do. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Cause um, I just, I, I just have like a really, really of all the, the ideas and projects I've ever had and worked on and parties and events and stuff like that. And brands like this is the one that I feel like, the most promise about because it's something that the the North America, I can't speak for the whole world. I can definitely speak like it's something that we need, you know, but like doesn't exist. So like, that's kind of always been my focus is to kind of try to create those things. And this one seems extra, super crucial. And like I said, I'm just having like, there's a lot of like, I'll watch a lot of like, there's like a YouTube quiz. It's like a hundred, anime openings from easy to hard and it'll just be like play like 10 seconds of a song and you just like have to guess it and i'll just i'll be doing those things like all the time just to stay sharp you know and just and like the craziest thing was the first night we did this party i'm doing it with this uh this cat dj fever 
the first night we're DJing this party, we didn't play any remixes. We didn't play any rap songs that mention anime or about anime. We literally played nothing but straight OPs for, for, for like five hours. And the whole time, everybody was there like for it. And people were coming up and making great requests. And one or two people like had like neither of us have it kind of like stump us requests we'll have it next time that'll never happen again you know? <laughs> like, like, but but like that just i don't know it was it was a pretty pretty amazing feeling and i can't i can't wait to keep going forward with this project because it's like I, i'm just I'm, I'm so i'm so invested in it in like every every way you know because i feel like down the road this is going to be like a normal th thing like like anime based like dance parties like because it's gonna it's gonna give off like it's gonna be like you know like you're basically like, like an emo night party type vibes you know so they're like like that what is it that off. smith's party that was at sway back in the day or something you know oh, it's yeah, just yeah, like exactly. it's like a general vibe it's like oh you like anime this is the party basically exactly exactly and you know other than that especially when it comes to like cosplay like people can do it like on tiktok and on instagram but other than like once or twice a year when you might have like an anime convention in your city or, or a Comic-Con Comic, or something yeah, like Comic -Con that. Yeah, Comic-Con thing, yeah. Yeah, there's not really a lot of places to really do that. But now, you and know... People probably create, work on their outfits quite a bit, too, to like exactly. do it, to, to, to get it right, basically. So once we once our numbers are really, really up there and everything is really bubbling, that's when, like, I want to, like, detail, like, this night is about, like, this anime. You know what I mean? Like, once we get to that point where it's just like, this is Attack on Titan night, or this is, you know, Demon Slayer night, this is One Piece night, where it's just like hyper-focused on like one particular show and stuff and we're you know I'm, we're giving away cash for the best cosplay and stuff like that but like just to give the cosplayers like an outlet to really like do that shit on a regular where it's that's just cool that's day. very cool like i think i i don't know it's all coming together and the first one happened and um the venue like the the folks at brooklyn bowl like live nation like they they see they they fuck with the vision you know what i mean they see <laughs> Like it was really hard at first to really actually try to really reach the crowd because like from from music based, you know, from from for everybody that comes out to any other party that I might have their email or any other way of reaching and stuff, like the it's it's it just doesn't like necessarily translate with the stuff you it did before. Yes. Because you Same have Yeah, because you have like this uh pretty established night that's been going on for a while, the Drake night. Yeah, so, so far, far gone, gone right? Yeah. So how yeah. how long? I mean, you that's turned into quite a crazy party. Like you guys get thousands of people out for that party, right? Or, yeah, we do. That's um, insane. How yeah. did that grow? And I mean, did it really just pop off from the beginning, or how did that kind of come together? It really did. It popped off from the beginning. It was 2014 um, that it started, and from the very first night, um, you know, the thing about it is, it's like the format of the party is like from the minute the doors open, the ones here started like nine o'clock. So from nine until 12, first like three hours, we'll just basically be playing a bunch of like popular, you know, current relevant, like hip hop and rap. And for the most part, you know, just a little bit of R and B or like Afro beats or dance hall or something in there too. But basically, you know, things that, sound good next to drake's music and then from 12 until 2 it's just a straight two-hour block of big drake hits which is a crazy evolving thing because like even in 2014 at the very first one when i did the very first 
all Drake, you know, two hour block. Even back then, I probably left a good 45, 50 minutes of hits on like the cutting room floor. Like, so even then there was just two hours of Drake hits. So ever since then, you can only imagine that's just grown and grown and this catalog is crazy. So like getting in two hours, you leave a ton of stuff out, but when he's always putting out new music, there's always some new hits to throw in there. And the, I mean, the guy is, you know, he's the most prolific artist, like to pretty much of all time, you know, on some hit level, you know, he's passed. Yeah. The he's, he's, he's made many, many hits. That's true. Even if people are hating on him or whatever, he's, he's yeah. made and like, he, and, and the, you know, you can't, if you're playing like a weekend night somewhere where you kind of have to hit, a general crowd you probably will end up playing some record that he's on <laughs> yeah and that's another thing is like he's made records in so many different styles too you know he's got you've got you know jokingly you've got spanish drake you've got jamaican drake you've got memphis drake you've got houston drake you've got toronto drake you got all these different drakes uh you got london drake you know who makes like house music with like georgia smith and like black coffee and stuff you know so you got all these different uh drake sounds so the guy unto himself like covers so many different like sort of genres of music that it was just really easy to sort of format a night that was based around his music and ever since then it's you know it's just been pretty simple you know yeah no it's crazy like the the party goes as he goes and he's still he's still on top so we'll you know and just like again like sort of touching on the eclecticism <laughs> you had also a pretty established yacht rock party for a while in philly right what yeah, was, what was uh, that called smooth sailing smooth sailing smooth perfect <laughs> that was um we all had our smooth names i went by joey maserati perfect uh, <laughs> uh, Flufftronics. he went by a michael tender um this guy uh my my guy roams he went by uh well, I know my guy Dan the Swede went by Sir Stanley Starboard. And uh man, I forgot everybody's names. But anyway, I don't know. We just had a little like yacht rock collective. And that was But people, uh, I mean the but that was like not just like, oh, you're doing it at some like dive bar and hanging out. Like people came out to dance for it. Like it was a dance party, right? Yeah, it was a dance party. It you know, I feel like we might have been a little like a little behind and or a little ahead of the curve on that like i mean uh, looking at now like the, the stupid guardian and the galaxy soundtrack like yacht rock is like way much more in in the consciousness than say even 10 years ago even though obviously yeah. people know am gold and older people know it but it's kind of out there you know yeah and this was probably like i want to say like eight ten years ago but um, we did it. We did it for a couple of years, and then it was just kind of like you kind of had played all the records that you wanted to play, essentially, or what? Yeah, exactly, exactly. There was like that's the whole thing with me, like doing retro things in general. Is I hate the restriction of right, being right, like, and at the same time, certain you know, like trying to experiment and kind of like push like whatever the new sounds that would like go with that i don't know it just like ultimately became like it it did the party never grew it just smoothly sailed <laughs> and I think we just got we we just eventually kind of got bored of doing it you know and like uh, there was just, 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get that. There's, there's that point where you where you just like you know you can't you can't beat every idea like you know to death. Like sometimes you just gotta let it let it go. Right, right, right. And yeah, uh, I mean also the um, what was it the Fluffatronics or you were doing that kind of love step thing? You had like this whole series yeah, of like yeah, kind of that's... like the which is also a side of dubstep that you don't really think about, which is a sort of romantic dubstep. <laughs> Or yeah, just was, the softer um, side of dubstep. So again, like you kind of clue in on all these things that it's sort of like different, a different take on it that you generally don't see. That was the thing about that was like, well, it was like 2009. And that was like when I kind of like coined that term and really recognized that. Uh, Cause there was know, that like Bobby Caldwell, like dubstep remix and a few oh, things yeah, like that. that. that yep. Yeah, and, um, Oh man, there was like a Casper remix of the art of noise of uh, moments in love. That was like that. And like, uh, there was also a, uh, who did the remix of uh, dead mouse? I remember, I think it was, I don't know, but, but, but it was like, there was just like a, a nice handful of records that came out during that very, very early dubstep era that were just super melodic and super sexy. And I was just like, you know, I, Almost like I, harking back to like the atmospheric side of drum and bass as opposed to the harder shit in the mid nineties. Exactly. You know, the good looking label or whatever. Exactly. And it and it was almost like some of these records, like you mentioned the Bobby Caldwell, like even had like an uh, like a, a soulfulness about them, you know? And like these are all qualities that were not being ascribed to dubstep at that time. And, you know, everything was it was still before like the more north like us like bro step takeover of it but even like the british stuff like horsepower productions and scream and Benga and like that stuff was all still like kind of like sparser harder like warehouse hard, hard, yeah. Yeah? so that was kind of like you know that was the vibe so it was just like just sort of recognizing that like you know so we we dropped it was cool like finished up that mix in like 2009 and um and like basically just like sent out just made a massive promo list probably that like that october and just sent it out to all our friends and all these djs and we were just get you know it was still like it was still um unreleased at that point and the whole thing was like we're gonna release this on valentine's day but we gave it to like influential friends like months before that and people really really loved it you know and so then by the time it actually like was coming out we actually built up like a lot of like anticipation for it. And um, yeah, the first, first few volumes were doing like, you know, hundreds of thousands, like millions of like, you know, plays and downloads and stuff like that. And we were working with Mad Decent on that a little bit. And we, we, we did a few of the Mad Decent block parties as Love Step, a couple of them. Uh, we actually recorded a live mix from one of those and like, in 2010 and then we would drop the mixes every uh every valentine's day for eight years um and then yeah we haven't done the project now for a few years but it was also like kind of like i don't know what uh, if, if, if anything if i was gonna do it now i feel like 75 percent of the mix would probably be drum and bass to be honest with you and i don't know if you can kind of call like drum, drum and bass love step but like that's the place where I think right now in 2022, like there's the most like similar vibe of like really melodic love song, like dance music that's not four on the floor, like 
house kind of sounds is is a lot of like the really like melodic drum and bass stuff so but yeah we haven't worked on the project now for like three four years but it was yeah, definitely be, good it was fun about- for a while you were and you didn't you had like a sub label through mad decent right or you had your own label it was like old head yeah, records I, a, I forget. I sub, yeah it's called old head records through mad decent and you're kind of like was, you're i remember you were kind of like also trying to get you know you're working with like brick bandits and some of that kind of jersey club stuff so you were kind of promoting yeah. that back in the day you we know. put out a we put out a brick bandits um ep on that label it had uh well it had philly's uh dj sega on it um dj tamil and Tim Dalla, both from Baltimore. Um, Brick Bandits had expanded in Chicago <clears throat> at that point and a big record by a dude named uh, Charlie Glitch from a squad called Ghetto Division. Um, he had a record called The Chase that we put on that. Uh, that was a really cool one. Uh, DJ Beastie, who was also originally from Jersey, but he was uh, in Kansas City at the time. He had, a, he had a remix of Daft Punk Robot Rock on there. Um, and then... Uh, I think that was about it. But it oh, and then Mike V, who's the CEO of Brick Bandits, he had a really, really cool melodic song called "Feelings" that was on there. But so it was a pretty, uh, it was a, it was a pretty experimental like little club record. But I thought it was like, I don't know, it was pretty great. And, um, and yeah, was, that was our, that was a, that was a EP like a twelve inch EP that we put out with Mad Decent. They were like the P and Ds on Old Head. Word word. Uh, back in the day. Nice. And uh, another thing, which I really, after knowing you for like 20 years, I even realized is that you're Palestinian because that, which was kind of like, it's kind of crazy. Sometimes you just, yeah, I mean, it's not something you're just going to ask someone, but then when we were talking about it, probably when I was posting some of the random uh, rants against Israel and all this stuff, and maybe that's when it came up and you actually came and played a Palestinian benefit that I put on. So that was, that was, that was really cool, man. But, uh, yeah, maybe if you want to talk about some of your background, because I think, you know, essentially sometimes, you know, as you were as we were kind of talking about the very beginning of the interview, it's kind of nice that there is some cracks and it feels like you can have a conversation about these things a little bit more. But I feel like, yeah, it's just buried. like you don't really think about Palestinian artists out there like, you know. No, you, you know, because the biggest Palestinian artist in the world, um, he's so like uh, his own, you know, is, is DJ Khaled. Khaled. Yeah, exactly. You know? I, I found that Everybody out knows. like, you know, a few years back, too, which was wild, though. He did it. He did do a Sabra ad for the Super Bowl. So oh, I'm like, no. I'm like uh, I guess it's when just did like he do that. How what? long ago did he do that? Three or four years ago. I, uh, you oh, know, I, uh, <laughs> but it is what it is. I, I, I kind of look at him as just a businessman. So he's just not thinking about it, I, I guess, to, uh, you know. Have you ever met him or no? Okay, I only met him one time a few years ago. There was a, uh, I wonder, I think it was like the Fader was doing it, but there was a weird like ping pong event that had, that Khaled was at. That was, uh, Justin Bieber was there playing ping pong against, Justin Bieber played a game. He was apparently, he was really good at ping pong, Justin Bieber. Hilarious. He played a game against two he was played a game against two pros and almost won by himself against two. It was really random things going on. I forget who else was there, but what was crazy is I knew Colin was going to be at this thing. And I wore a t-shirt uh, like this dope Yasser Arafat t-shirt. So then I was just like, when we got a picture together, it was like me and Khaled and Yasser Arafat. <laughs> Perfect. And I was just like, this is the most Palestinian picture in the world of today. <laughs> but 
I don't know. He didn't seem to be like upset or pleased. He had a very like I couldn't really read his face, but but yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah, you don't you, you don't you don't hear a lot. When I was a when I was a kid, my dad had a like a he gave me like this like my father was a was a journalist. You know, he he basically wrote about you know he's he spent all his time in like the State Department and at the White House, like you know, and he um, he had a company called Arab American Media Service. And he would basically, you know, write about Middle Eastern affairs. Um, and he, once upon a time, he gave me this, like this little pamphlet, this little handbook that was, uh, the person that's on the cover was Casey Casey, you know, the old radio DJ. He's a, he's and he's Lebanese, Lebanese, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was just like a very short list of, here are all the prominent, entertainment like Arabs you know what I mean and it was just like here's Vic Tabak from you know Alice here's Doug Flutie the quarterback here's like um and it was just it's a very short list you know what I mean so it's just like it's always been kind of like um you know it's weird it was like, I think Jamie Farr was in there and at the same time it's kind of weird because he was kind of like menstrually in the way that he played uh you know corporal clinger and all that kind of stuff like i don't know there was um so it's just been like always like this sort of like weird line like how 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 much do like i put up put my background out there when i'm trying to be like an entertainer or at what point do i you know what i mean like I, i've always just been like all right when i when, i don't know i can't tell you right now exactly when like when like I step on like the, the the pedal of like going hard about my about like things related to identity, but it's going to be after I've sort of gotten to a certain place where I feel like it's not about losing anything like endorsements or anything like that. It's just like having a certain amount of like undeniable influence where I'll actually like go off, you know. And in the meantime, like. I don't make it's not like a well, secret. I mean, I think the tricky it's thing out. is you can't really like tell artists exactly how they want to present themselves. Like, you know, do you have to even like it, it, I mean, it sucks that, you know, obviously the Palestinians have been so oppressed for so long. And, you know, I think they should be represented out everywhere, including the art world. But you also can't just tell artists like, OK, you got to like just blah, blah, blah. You have to just let people do how they want to approach it, you know? Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, when it was like the opportunity, you know, when you're like, yo, would you like to play it at the DJs for BDS? And I was like, hell yeah. You know, that's something that like I, I you know, and, you know, for all I know, I haven't I haven't been back to visit family over there since we did that. And I don't know if just that that being Googleable or something like puts me on any kind of. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. You Whatever. can't get into being very and kind of like a situation i mean your family's out there so if you need to visit them you know i think it's different you know than just like like promoting israel as if some normalized state because i think what happens is that that's the whole concept of the bds movement and you know you can kind of look at what was happening in south africa you know like uh what was that that we're not going to play suntown or whatever that sun Sun city City. i always say that suntown sun city you know that was the whole concept because you know there's a lot of people that unfortunately did play sun city that did cross yeah. the pick like even queen did and 
Elton John, and it's like it kind of normalizes the shit because it's like, especially if you have like, let's say, you know, you have a hip hop artist that go and plays Israel, then Israel can kind of like, see, we're not racist. It's like the kind of con- the classic concept of the black friend, you know, that well, they're really that, just using why, those artists to whitewash what well, they and are. That's why it's you know? so hard to like pinkwash everything. You know, that's the whole thing with Israel and like basically like trying to, you know, pretend that you know Tel Aviv is just like this like. Fashion of gay rights paradise or something. Right, right. And, you know, meanwhile, using the same kind of tactics to kind of like bully and blackmail like young Palestinians who. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're listening in on their conversations to be like, oh, this person's gay. Let's try to blackmail. I know it's, it's absolutely twisted. It's twisted. It's so, it's so diabolical. But yeah, so, um, yeah, but like, I mean, uh, I, I mean, even though I'm obviously out there and yelling all the time and people probably think I'm crazy, I don't really give a fuck. It's just you can't really tell artists exactly, you know, I mean, I think it's good that they should take a stand on a basic level. But, you know, they sure. they also can kind of just approach life how they want to do it. Like you're obviously a music head throwing parties like, you know, that's going to be a focus of your time. You know, I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like. I don't know if like if I was to, to try to make a, that such a like a focal point of my my identity as an artist, it wouldn't be like genuine, like un, into the fact that like like even at that party, you know, you know some people were upset because like I wasn't playing Arabic music, and like the thing is like I don't know jack shit about like Arabic music. I would like to know actually my my, my younger sister Huda she's like giving me some tips and we're like talking about things and like i am a sponge for things that i'm interested in you know what i mean like right now i'm focused really heavily on japan and anime music but at some point in time i'm sure there's going to be a point in time where i want to know everything i could possibly know about arabic music and at that point you know maybe you know i make that more of like the you know what i'm marketing or something but like you know i i definitely still like you know, say what needs to be said when I need to say it. But then again, like, who's to say how much somebody's supposed to just, like, say something on their social media about Well, social about media it. is, like, a wacky thing. I mean, I really just use it as a tool, yeah. you know? I mean... You know, I, should I, I be writing, like, long-form things on Medium or something, you know? Like, no, you, I, you know, know, you kind of just figure out, like, what works for you and how you want to approach it. A lot of people have a lot of different approaches. I mean, even the people I follow on Twitter, you'll you know, I'll follow like real kind of like Marxist scholar intellectuals all follow people, you know, like my personal style. I'm like, you know, I'm also just, like grew up in like the ska scene, punk scene, hip hop. Like, yeah. I kind of am like, dude, I'm going to say, fuck this. You know, I'm, I'm not really trying to be like some sort of news host or whatever. So right. I don't feel like I need to actually go that whole, like there's a lot of people that are like, let's present this very professionally. Let's appeal to like, that kind of like intellectual but i also feel like there's so many people that have like cognitive dissonance going on that even if you appeal to it logically and very well written and all this stuff they're still not going to see it and that's why i think you do need people to just say yo fuck off you're fucking (laughs) you know what i mean you kind of need like all these different ways to kind of like sort of punch holes into these narratives that are sort of thrown on us that are just complete and utter bullshit. You know, like I said, through, as people have mentioned, it's through the looking glass. It's like upside down, like Israel is a democracy and 
the Palestinians are terrorists, except it's like, actually, it's the complete opposite of that, you know? But, right. you know, if you have mainstream media and politicians blasting out that opposite message constantly, and again, another thing I brought up many times in other people, that Malcolm X quote on the media, you know, it'll it'll have you rooting for the oppressors the oppressor. and thinking that yeah. the oppressed are the enemy. So it's like... Yeah. It's that kind of like sort of general gaslighting in society that just really infuriates me. And I mean, you know, whatever. I'm a white guy from the suburbs, but it's just like, you know, I mean, I think like more people should jump out of it. Like, you know, if you're in America and you're living a good life or the global north, as people put it, and you're reaping the benefits of, you know, your country's like kind of like oppressing other countries for hundreds of years and taking their wealth. Well, then you should actually be more, you know. Connected. adamant about yep. like what they're doing because you benefit from it but instead people are kind of like just living in it enjoying their life so they're like hey my life is fine i don't know what these people are complaining about because yeah oh, it's okay. just completely removed you know and so how do you get to those people even if you're like you know because look there's like electronic intifada mondo weiss there's all these news you know that have documented this shit for you know people writing books poetry whatever decades you know it's like so then all the info is there so if people are not paying attention you know then it's like they're I just not you know <laughs> i don't know it's hard there's to definitely it, been pretty seismic i think cultural shifts though in attitudes like i think that younger kids are completely like not buying into it and i think i think that i think that when i was talking about before about how like i feel like a major change is coming in the next few years it wasn't necessarily even about like the policy and the money trail it was more about like the same uh you know adam sandler of you know a few years ago like just like young popular like like jewish entertainers are going to find it like find themselves less and less aligned with israel and the interests and just like the birthright trips and all that kind of stuff I feel like the veil of that bullshit is like gone and everybody can see what the fuck it really is. And I don't think it's going to be in anybody's interest to be on that side of like history anymore. Yeah. And I mean, that, well, that's the thing. I think, I, think like that was, I think it's a big thing is for, to, I feel, feel like, you know, one of the main things I like to do when I'm actually like reposting or posting something is I like to, I like to cite, Jewish authors when writing things that are pro-Palestine because, you know, that I think is really kind of another like a hard thing for, uh, you know, I can really speak for like my friends in America, but like American Jews to identify with their Jewish without identifying with Israel, you know? Yeah, well, it's, it's splitting. Well, that's a yeah, it's a classic like Zionist trope is they want to speak for all Jews. So therefore, that's their whole concept is that if you're a Jew, you have to be a Zionist so that it kind of falls into this other fallacy argument, which is then if you're criticizing Judaism, because by Zionist's, Zionist definition of Judaism is they're all Zionists. So then when you criticize Judaism, you're criticizing Zionism. So then anytime you criticize something as obvious as the racism in Israel, you're quote unquote being anti-Semitic, you know? Right. So this is a very, very tired argument. And I do think like, you know, like my mom's Jewish. So, I mean, obviously 
it's like I mean I grew up going to Catholic school and it's also you can argue is like Jewish even a, a, a race per se you know it's like you're Semites yeah. and so are Palestinians and so are many other people but I mean beyond all that it's like yeah it's about trying to kind of split that where it's like yeah if if you're Jewish and you're against racism then you should be fucking anti-Zionist if you're a DJ yeah. <laughs> you know it's like like if you're a DJ playing hip hop and south africa at sun city in 1989 it's probably not a good look like what the fuck are you doing you know but I mean, but at the same time you still have lots of artists going to israel and performing and so but i mean but yeah i think it's you know there's 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 there you see kind of like cracks and obviously cracks. and there's a long way to go but bigger, i think bigger, i mean even in, even in the time that i've been posting about this shit which is probably like the last 12 years you know it's definitely like you can see things change, especially over the last couple of years. But obviously, on the ground, they're still trying to kick people out of like, was it Sheikh Jarrah and those neighborhoods? Yeah. You know. So I mean, on the ground, it's still ruthless, and also on paper, we still don't have really any politicians that are gonna, you know, stop the funding of Israel and all that stuff. Sure. So it's like it's we still have a long way to go. Obviously. Yeah. You know? Even those. Even the. The squad members vote for like. I I don't know. You get very I get very jaded on electoral politics because it's like because in the end every one of those people are an imperialist. I mean, right now AOC is talking about Ukraine and blah blah blah. She sounds no different than Biden. So it's like, is is this your progressive darling? It's just another shade of the Democratic Party, which is a corporatist imperialist party. You know, even if they're not as obviously fascist as like the republicans are still you know it's like fascism with a, a rainbow flag on the b-52 bomber you know yeah I mean? I, I, the only the only i only i only believe in bernie everybody else is just nah. like well because you can see but again if you're palestinian and you see these kind of milk toast statements where it's like it's always like this kind of stuff where it's like you know the pal- you know they should be free but israel has you know it's like it's always this butt shit and it's like I mean, imagine saying that shit with like slave owners, you know, like slavery, right. like, you know, the slaves should be free. But, you know, the slave owners, we haven't really considered their perspective. It's like, the <laughs> fuck out of here. How would you tra- tra- take that seriously? But we're supposed to kind of take that kind of diet. That's that's where I kind of I don't know. I get very tired of like debating online. I find it a complete waste of time. Like if you can't have you haven't figured out that Israel is an apartheid state. I don't know. what the then fuck you're to just tell you're <laughs> And your head is totally buried in the sand and you're completely like t- cognitive dissonance is like your middle name. Yeah. I mean, it's like brain rot. I mean, that's what I consider because if you're kind of consuming corporate media and listening to politicians, it's just propaganda. And so it just kind of like you'll you'll basically have very intelligent adults who probably don't think they're fascist. Might, some of them probably even think they're leftists or progressive. But then if they're repeating state department talking points it's like are you even kind of thinking out how you got this information you know i don't know i feel like that's the thing that also kind of is crazy because you know like yourself just been djing forever it's not like you know i'm a policy wonk or i got a phd and you know this or that you know it's like i dj parties so i don't really consider myself some sort of high intellectual per se you know i don't think i'm dumb but you know what i mean i'm not like writing these papers and yet you have intelligent people that just like say the dumbest shit, you know, that just are not really clued in on basic structural facts of how the world is. And it's just like, yeah, it's just goal, gullibility. Like I, it, that's what really surprises me that a lot of adults, in my opinion, it's like, 
how do you, how do you fall for this shit? <laughs> How do you like look at this stuff and then say, well, that's complicated when Israel shoots a 14 year old? Well, okay, if you're saying it's complicated, you're a heartless son of a bitch. Are you even listening to what you sound like? You know? Well, I mean, like, I don't think, Fuck, I don't think man. anybody's ever really, really even like wrapped their heads around the mental picture, but like everybody can see it. Everybody's like, it's like, uh, it's like a, a sort of cliche at this point of a kid with a rock facing off against a tank or against soldiers with guns. Like, you know, that's like, put yourself in those like shoes. That's just like a very horrific, like, obviously this isn't a conflict. This is not a two sides thing. This is not a, there, there's no, there's, there's no Palestinian military. You know what I mean? There's no, like. Yeah, they it, don't have an air force, they don't have a Navy. So yeah, it's like. Yeah, everything's like, so it's just like, this is literally civilians, kids with rocks and like facing up against, you know, an, you know, an oppressor with guns and tanks, like on their land, mowing down their houses and trying to like steal everything that they've got. And it's just like, and to continue and, 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 you know, expel, you know, it's just like a, it's, it's just like a slow rolling genocide. And everybody's just kind of like completely uh, characterizes it as if there are two sides and there's no, nothing even, close to resembling that you know what i mean it's just like it's just a it's just like a it's a campaign of like destruction and, and disinformation it's, it's settler yeah. colonialism it's 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 apartheid yeah. and as many people have pointed out you can't just say it's only apartheid it's genocide it really is yeah. about erasure you know and uh i think what's twisted is again people especially in the west just have in my opinion i think it's just it's the media they just have too much faith in the media like even if the New York Times or these sources have lied us into every war, you know, weapons of mass destruction, the incubator babies, like even something I, I didn't even catch when it was happening in Libya. They had a whole made up story about how Libyan soldiers were taking Viagra and raping people. Also just completely make up, made up to then justify destroying Libya. So it's like when you has have like stacks and stacks of lies for a hundred years, a Gulf of Tonkin incident, you know, for the Vietnam right. war, when you have like so many of these things, like why would you keep trusting a pathological liar? That's the thing that kind of kills me. That's the gullibility part. But then they're still like, well, the New York times said it was a clash. <laughs> yeah. I don't and know. Then when you're, and then when you're so, so-called, so you know, insiders that are the resistors that are the supposed left end up being like milk toast, like, the squad and stuff like that. They're just like, well, well it's, wait, it's, wait. It's, it's, it's a, it's a controlled opposition. Yeah. And then you even have layers of the controlled opposition. You know, you have like the Democrats, the, the corporate Democrats that, you know, are sellouts. So then they kind of come up with more progressive people who also are kind of sellouts. So it's like, it just, it's, it's almost like hey, create, no, actually, it's creating, creating a situation where you can't win, you know, hey, obviously, no way, like, you know. Uh, on the on the the Israel vote, I mean, I definitely got to give uh, Rashida Tlaib, who is Palestinian, and Ilhan Omar their props for like not, you know, not ever co-signing that shit, the budgets and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, like but the Iron Dome thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they kind of have their moments. I mean, I'm not like super jazzed on them, but they at least have made some statements. But uh, you know, my problem with the squad is they tend to tweet about things more than actually doing it like you know they're like they're like we really need universal health care it's like motherfucker you're the lawmaker throw it up there yeah. you know throw it up there 
it's like don't there's tweet no, about it you know i would like no point the activists can tweet about it. it you're the lawmaker you know i don't know they're t- they're so completely scared to use what little power that they have and like they definitely are like just you know trying to like not upset that you know the 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 system that's already in place like and they'll just they're, they're always just going to kowtow to whatever like the corporate side of the, which is 99 percent of it of the democratic party tells them to do they're not they're not going to resist they're, they don't use their power in uh um any kind of like organized or you know like serious kind of way like i first aoc wasn't she doing like weird like sit-ins in pelosi's office and now she's just like trying Mom, to mama be bear her. mama bear and now she comes yeah, now, yeah and now she just like she's like holding her purse for her and just waiting to like yo will you hand this over to me when you decide to retire one day like like what happened yeah, like after you after you've done like, enough insider trading with your husband and you decide to retire with your like hundreds of millions crazy <laughs> crazy that these are the, the uh, i know like, it's a, it's a terrible world but I mean, it, 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 it's definitely better with people like yourself in it, for sure, man. And, uh, Thanks, man. you know, and uh, I know we've been talking for a while. Uh, there was one other thing is uh, I know that I don't know if you still are, but you've been vegetarian or have been for a while. Were you, are you still vegetarian? Yeah, man. I've been, been vegetarian since, damn, I want to say 99, 98, something like that. Quite a while. So again, uh, kind of ahead of the curve a bit on on stuff like that. That's pretty crazy. I was reading an interview. I guess people were were talking about it. Like, I guess you had a, a roommate, or you had some roommates that were all vegetarian and kind of like for cooking, or kind of sort of like. Uh, how did you kind of like go down that path? Just observing. Just like I I kept randomly like maybe just like dating vegetarian girls. Like it happened like two three times in a row that these girls I was dating were vegetarian and like my roommates were vegetarian like and it was just like uh and i just was just like okay well this is like and at first it just seemed like it was like a easy enough thing to do and it seemed like healthier you know and and it was kind of like i just decided and <laughs> haven't looked back since like a long time ago um but it's funny because i was actually thinking about that before when i was talking about just like the uh more public you know, identification of my like Palestinian this, like I've always, I've, I've basically had people close to me, uh, like go vegetarian too. And I've never been like the type of person to ever tell anybody else like what to eat or like this, you know, you shouldn't eat me. I've never been in anybody's face about being a vegetarian. I've never ever told anybody else what they should do. I'm just like, this is me. This is what I do. And I think that actually like, that example of me making it not a big deal to do that has actually been influential on other people to maybe make some similar choices. And that's just been like my experience over the last, you know, few decades of being a vegetarian. And I think that that's kind of a little bit of how I relate to also being like Palestinian. Like I'd much rather just sort of like be like, you know, an entertaining person that pops up on people's radar and then it was like, I just happen to be Palestinian too. So now you have an example that's not, like not an extreme or anything. It's just like, oh, okay. There are people too that aren't just like just mired in making their identity all about the fact that they are strictly like Palestinian. And they're, you know, well, and yeah, and like, that's, I don't, and that's what I think. You can't. I don't think it's fair to to say that you know anyone is from a certain background has to kind of like 
you know, because that is sort of flattens in, in a way, you know, obviously there's lots of different people in terms of any kind of background. So they're going to approach it in different ways, you know? Yeah. And now I, I wish I didn't know about, I don't, I don't know how I missed the whole like Khaled working for Sabra, but I do like, I do, uh, I think I it was a one-off it. thing, but it's just like Sabra is so fucking whack. It's like, oh man, this dude's just oh, taking terrible. a paycheck, but whatever. It's, but I, I guess he, he, I, my whole thing, and again, I'm not trying to judge these dudes in a real way, but it's just like, you probably have enough money. <laughs> you have enough kicks. Like, yeah. do you really need that Sabra money? But again, you know, whatever. It just is what it is, you know. There's much worse artists out there, like people like Radiohead or whatever, I find much more annoying, you know, when... They really thumb the nose to be like, well, we're going to play Israel anyway, because that's just, or Nick Cave, too, you know, it's like. Hey, shout out to uh, Roger Waters, though. That guy's no, Roger like, Waters is shit, man. Roger Waters is, that's the thing, too, that's kind of crazy also, is that there's not a lot of celebrities that are, I mean, that term woke is kind of like very done and buried and boiled, but I mean, there really isn't a lot of, you know, super aware celebrities, you know that are on that level that kind of push the politics that he pushes, like, you know, Julian Assange and even the the lawyer that was targeted by Chevron, like Stephen Don Donzinger. That's like you know, I he's mean he's that, he's out like, there. He's 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 definitely that right. see yeah. once you reach that Roger Waters level, you can just say whatever the fuck you want. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're not they're never gonna fall back on anything because you're just like you were already Roger fucking Waters. So you can already you can be like that's 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 it's a pretty, uh, pretty inspirational uh, guy right there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Big shouts to Roger Waters, for sure, man. Um, and you have a podcast, too, now. I didn't even realize that. With a Dude, low budget, Because right? you guys are budget, go back yeah. to, like, the Holotronics board and all the, uh, obviously, these, these different scenes, you know. Yeah, man. Actually, when I first moved to Philly, like, he worked at Armand's, and that's where we met. Like, he and, uh, he and uh, Diplo had just, they had just kind of been you know, doing their, uh, holotronics parties. And it was before they dropped the holotronics mixtape. I actually kind of like gave them a couple of suggestions of songs that they actually ended up using on the mixtape. And the mixtape ended up being like New York times, top 10, you know, has and job poll or whatever, like just this mixtape, like reaches like, you know, and that was kind of where their, their rise started. But so, yeah, we met around that, that same time in 2003 and basically just been like, you know, really good friends ever since. And just like we were, you know, he was doing the yacht rock thing with me and we've been doing various projects and parties through the years. But we, uh, at a certain point, we're just like, we we realized that most of the time, like most of our time is like trying to spend, spent trying to get the, you know, make the other person laugh. Or like, what better way to explore that than to do that under the the guise of being a podcast about working DJs. We also do this with our homie Jaber, who is the producer. Um, and so, I mean, that's like, it's, it's, it's a podcast about, you know, culture and working DJs and DJ stuff. We do talk about music a lot, very specifically. We like to like, we do things that like, once our podcast reaches like a certain amount of popularity, we're probably not going to be able to do anymore for copyright reasons, which is just like, we'll like literally just like play a new song and then kind of, not the whole song, but just like a little bit. And then we'll talk about it. And we've only had like one episode actually pulled. That was from some party next door song or something. But uh, but yeah. So but we we do all that where the the real the real focus is to try to to be funny because I think that deep down inside, even though we're both professional DJs, if we really could have our way in this world, we would be like 
stand-up comics, but neither of us has the cojones to actually do it. So we we try to explore our humor via the podcast, via the ARD podcast. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, was it that one Eddie Harris record, The Reason That I'm Talking Shit? You know, he's like, obviously, the legendary sax player, but then he had so much, like, I guess, between gig banter that in the 70s, he kind of convinced Atlantic to basically put out a comedy record with, like, one song, you know? Though he wasn't a particularly great stand-up comic, so, but... (laughs) But I thought it was kind of that's like kind of like the ultimate that's crossover the of like you know when like musicians want to be comedians and comedians want to be musicians. But he actually did make a comedy record, which I think is hilarious. But that yeah, you know, there's always that element where it's like it's just different mediums, you know. No, actually, yeah, absolutely, man. That's a, <laughs> I gotta look into that Eddie Harris record. That's amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, because I was listening to one of them that was about the versus battle with a uh, big daddy Kane and, and Karis one, oh, yeah. which was funny. Cause you were just like, you're like, again, and it's sort of like one of the things I do admire about you is that you just keep moving. You're like, ah, I used to listen to that shit. I'm kind of done with it. It peaked at a certain time, you know, it's like, it was funny though. You guys were talking about, and this is some real DJ nerd shit. You're talking about like, Kid Capri using an SL one box, you know, the first Serrano <laughs> box. I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> Which is some nerd. That's sort of like the very beginning and like still rocking an SL one box, like even to this day, which is kind of, but I mean, as you said, it was actually stable as long as you don't have an operating system. That's so new that it's not going to work anymore. But, uh, oh that shit is, that's some real DJ nerd shit. It's like, yo, Kid Capri was on absolute using an SL one and you guys are laughing about it. It's very funny. I guess, I mean, it may not be funny to people, but for people DJing, that's some funny shit. What happens is, like, I feel like it's this weird, dirty little secret here in town. But, you know, obviously, like, post-quarantine, now that things are sort of more or less open back up, kind of everywhere, you know, you you start to see people you haven't seen in a couple years, DJ homies at various, you know, little events and things here and there. And every time I see a different, like, Philly, like, DJ homie they kind of like pull me to the side like they're just like yo man you know like it's like it's like a secret like yo i really love the podcast when you guys are doing this and, was, and, then they go, and they and it's almost like they're whispering like they don't want anybody else in the room but no. but but, I, but i've gotten it from like dozens of different djs and like random people here in town they're like man, i really love the podcast so i feel like you know I, if there are more philly djs in the world then we'll reach more people but obviously you're not a philly dj but you're a new york dj but we're here to entertain. No, it's good. It's good. It's fabulous. Well, anyways, I know we've been talking for a while, but uh, thanks so much. And uh, what do you think? I know you have 8 billion mixes. I actually remember, I think you you did like a Moonchie mix back in the day, like of oh, all yeah. Moonchie tracks. Like you really have hit like a lot of different uh, styles of music, but um, yeah, um, we'll, said- we'll talk about it. You know, send me, send me a mix, new, old or whatever. It doesn't matter. Because I usually have I was, a mix a comp- accompany the uh, podcast of like you know. I was 45 thinking about uh, about doing a mix of literally like just um, like really dope um, anime score music, like no like not really like song stuff, more just like you know soundscapes and atmospheres and and just beats and 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 uh, and just funky soundtrack sounds. That sounds awesome, man. Yeah. Well, word, man. Well, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on JasonCharles.net. JasonCharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds.
That was so deep. 